we have an educational system based on passive regurgitation of reading, writing, and arithmetic. It's a 19th and 20th century model that was built for educating a very different workforce than the kind of workforce we need today. So many of our teachers didn't have the experience of, say, learning science through evidence-based argumentation. There's not a lot of resources for teachers to facilitate learning environments with evidence-based argumentation. You're listening. You're listening to. You're listening to. You're listening to the Learning Futures. The podcast. Learning Futures. The podcast. Learning Futures podcast. the Learning Futures Podcast. I'm your host, Ron Baghetto. On this show, we explore big ideas, key issues, and questions facing education now and in the future, moving from what currently is to what could and should be, including considering serendipities and setbacks along the way. We're thrilled and honored to be joined by Brian Henderson today. Brian, can you tell us a little bit about yourself? So it's a pleasure to be here. I am a science educator. I'm an associate professor at Arizona State University in the Mary Lou Fulton Teachers College and did my PhD at Stanford University in science education. My background is in science. I used to do research in astrophysics. I used to teach college physics. And for the better part of the last decade and a half, I've uh, turned my interest to the brain and how people learn. And so knowing what we know about how people learn, I like to build technologies that I take into classrooms to try to support both teachers and students in learning science and what I'd like to think are potentially more effective, motivating ways. Excellent. Yeah. And that's, that's a really interesting journey um, that's allowed you to arrive at where you are right now. And so I, I guess the first question I'd like to ask is what do you see as a key or pressing educational question from your vantage point that you're currently working on? So you talked about building technologies, um, and motivation. Can you kind of talk to our audience who may not be familiar with some of the work that you've been doing and just kind of talk about what's really key or pressing about the issues you're working on and, and why is it important from your vantage point? So you're right. It was a, a long journey. It was a long, windy road. When I did my PhD, that was my sixth college degree. And so I have a very interdisciplinary background. And when you do six college degrees, it means you take a lot of classes and sitting in as many classes as I sat in. A trend that I notice, particularly in science and a trend that I continue to notice today, particularly at the primary and secondary school levels, is that the classroom really focuses its efforts on why right answers are right at the expense oftentimes of the equally important task of trying to figure out why wrong answers are wrong. And so I have a concern that when it comes to the way in which we portray science in science classrooms, in part because of how the textbooks are structured, when a science educator plans a lesson, most of their lesson is dominated by trying to give the students an explanation that is often kind of a one-sided, uncontested, coherent, logical account of how scientists of the day think about a particular phenomenon. And when you actually practice science, it's anything but clean, neat, and orderly. Science is really messy. And one of the hallmarks of science is critique. In other words, science isn't about why the right answers are right. Science is about trying to figure out which answers are wrong. And you keep rolling with the ones that you still haven't 
disconfirmed yet. And now going back to the classroom, if you present science in a one-sided, uncontested way, where you just focus on why the right answer is right, then it can potentially inculcate people to think that science is just a bunch of true and false propositions about the world. And I think that that can be particularly dangerous in an era where we have a lot of sense-making that takes place outside the classroom, such as through social media. And a lot of the information that we're getting bombarded with comes from myriad different interests. And so we're getting competing ways in which issues are presented. And an increasingly number of those important issues are of a science and or technological bent to them. And so I think that we need to spend more time in science classrooms developing a more critical disposition to how we approach scientific information as opposed to a more passive, okay, well, here's the right answer, here's how scientists think of it, and then regurgitate this one-sided way in which I'm gonna present science to you. Yeah, I just love um, the way you describe that, how you know, schools tend to focus on the correct answers and why they're correct at the expense of you know, incorrect answers and exploring the value of those. In addition, you know, the, there is a, seems to be this kind of binary or dichotomy in the way we think. Either things are correct or incorrect. And as a creativity researcher, um, you know, we obviously see science as a creative endeavor and, and creativity is all about plurality of perspectives and, and critique and discourse um, and often inconclusive, inconclusiveness, if you will. And so I'd be interested in hearing, um, given your background, if you kind of look back in the past a little bit, how did you used to think about this topic? Because you've spent a lot of time in this place called school. <laughs> and so how did you used to think about it and how has that changed, if at all? And um, how do you think we got to this current place where the emphasis is so placed on finding correct answers and trying to explain why those are correct at the expense of kind of the messiness that you were talking about? So how I used to think about this and part of what drove me into studying education is, is that so many of the science classes that I sat through were just so passive, where it was just trying to jot down equations that the professor was putting up on the whiteboard or the chalkboard. The professors seemed to be staring more at the whiteboard or the chalkboard than the students. And of course, it was just kind of like giving a derivation or just explaining how scientists they think about a particular phenomenon. There wasn't like, okay, well, but some people actually think this. So what do you guys think about the matter? It was simply listen to this logical, coherent explanation of how scientists today think about this. And so it was just, it was really passive. And so once I started teaching science at the college level, I wanted to buck that trend. And so I started kind of just dabbling around in stuff that had been written about different educational techniques that you could try out. And I happened across this book called Peer Instruction. It was written in 1997. It was written by a guy named Eric Mazur, who's a physics professor at Harvard University. And he was using these classroom response devices, often called clickers, where he would pose a question to the students. And instead of just giving them that one-sided, coherent explanation of how scientists think about a problem, instead he would have the students vote 
And then if there was a lack of consensus on how they voted, then he would ask them to turn to a partner and to try to navigate that uncertainty and try to figure out why they voted the way that they did. And then they had a chance to vote again. And so I was teaching at a community college at that time and we didn't have the resources for clickers. And so I made these tetrahedrons out of paper that had different numbers and colors on each side. And so I would pose a question and then the students would hold up their tetrahedron in accordance with the answer choice they thought was correct. Now, the problem with that was that um, they would often kind of look around and see what other people were holding up. And if a bunch of people were holding up like a green two, then, oh no, I better shift it to a green two. So that was a little bit problematic. And so I started uh, developing a technology that I continue to develop this day called Brain Candy, which allows you to use any web-enabled device to submit answers to questions and do so completely anonymously, which I think is another important thing that I observed in all those times in classrooms is that oftentimes in science, there's vicious stereotypes that kind of swirl about the room. And in some disciplines still, it's kind of a disaster zone when it comes to equity. When I was taking graduate physics classes, there would only be a handful of women in the classes. And I always thought about how stressful that must be with these ridiculous stereotypes about women in physics to raise your hand in this room full of all these men. The professor was typically a man. And have the stereotype threat of if you get the question wrong, then you're going to fall under this ridiculous stereotype about you. And that's got to be really intimidating and perhaps make it such that you might not always raise your hand, even though you might have wanted to. And so I really started believing strongly in the importance of anonymity in these learning spaces. And that's why Brain Candy provides you an anonymous way of being able to communicate with your instructor. The hope is to kind of reduce some of the stereotype threat that might exist. So interesting. So I love that you um, started out with like these little origami <laughs> response devices. They were made out of paper, right? You got to start somewhere. So yeah, they were like just uh, little paper tetrahedrons that had different numbers and colors on each side. Yeah, that's, that's really cool. And then you, you moved into developing this technology, um, Brain Candy, uh, and, and you talk about the importance of the anonymity and, and how this might disrupt some of the inequities that are often prevalent in science classrooms and science education. So can you tell our listeners a little bit more about the Brain Candy software? Is it available? Can people look at it? Can they use it? And have you looked at um, students' perceptions of use with that? what they like about, what are some things that maybe you want to address or enhance? So I use Brain Candy in every class that I teach. I've been developing it for around 10 years now. I started developing it in graduate school. And from day one, my mission has been to get it into the hands of as many people as possible. And so it's completely free. And if you go to braincandy.org, if you're a teacher, you just click on I am a teacher and it will allow you to enter information and get your hands on a free brain candy account. And to simplify things, we just keep accounts at the teacher level. And so if you're a teacher and you have an account, then you have this dashboard on your computer, which essentially has like a toolbox of all of these different features that you can toggle on or off, which are essentially all these different ways in which your students can tell you what they know and do so in an anonymous fashion. As I mentioned a minute ago, I think anonymity can be very important. And so 
you give your students a code for your class session. And so they can use any web enabled device, a phone, a tablet, laptop, and then they log in and are privy to these various different ways in which you can allow them to tell you what they think. So a couple of examples, um, we have a thing called the confusion checkbox. And I think this is uh, very common in classrooms for reasons that I mentioned a minute ago, where sometimes people are intimidated to raise their hand and say, hey, I'm confused. And there might be stereotypes that they don't want to fall under. They might psych themselves out and think, I must be the only person in class that doesn't know what's going on. When the reality is, is that if you're confused, there's probably other people confused too. And this isn't just a science issue. Uh, this isn't just a primary or secondary. This is, I mean, I, I go to conferences and you can still feel it in the room, you know, where there's a little bit of anxiety about speaking up in front of a large audience. You don't want to sound like you don't know what you're talking about. So the confusion checkbox, quite simply, is a little box that you can check on your screen and it notifies the teacher that somebody's confused. And it'll play a little sound too if the teacher's not at their computer. And so the teacher can see how many people are confused. So people can raise their hands and say they're confused without raising their hands and saying they're confused. So it's one thing to say you're confused, though. Another thing to communicate to the teacher what you're confused about. So there's another tool that you can toggle on or off called the scribble pad. And it's like this little yellow box emulating like a little yellow notepad on the student screen where at any time they can write a message and that message gets sent to the dashboard of the teacher. It's completely anonymous. And you can actually have a back and forth. The, the teacher can click on it and actually send a response and then it sends the response back to the student screen. So you can have a back and forth with the teacher. You can be like, hey, I'm confused, can you slow down? But at the same time, not have to worry about giving away your identity if you don't want to, which I think lowers the bar for entry. And I think it makes it more likely for students to say, hey, can you pump the brakes a little bit? I don't know how many times as a teacher, I'll ask the class, hey, how, are we cool? And there's kind of a little awkward smile, kind of a little awkward nod of the head. You can kind of feel the energy in the room that there's still some confusion. And then I'll be like, okay, if anybody is confused, you know, hit the confusion checkbox, you know, and then like seven people hit the confusion checkbox. So I do think that it gets more people to engage with the instructor when you, when you add the option of communicating anonymously. Those are really nice features, and um, I wish I would have been aware of this tool before in my own teaching. I'm definitely going to start using it. I really like how you can kind of signal that you're confused. You can provide additional information with respect to that. So going back to kind of one of the issues you raised earlier, how does this tool or tools like this, or are there other things you're working on to kind of, again, broaden the discourse that's happening in science to kind of move away from this idea that, you know, the aim is just to arrive as quickly as you can at the correct answer and move more into critique, more into possibility thinking around science, um, even speculation. Is this tool part of that effort or are there other tools or efforts that you're working on to kind of move in that direction? All of the above. With respect to brain candy, I mentioned that peer instruction method that was done at Harvard University and the use of the clickers and how instead of just giving the students an explanation of why a right answer is right, instead what you do 
if there's lack of consensus in the classroom is you actually put it on the students to have to talk with each other to figure out who's right, who's wrong. And so Brain Candy allows you to do that in multiple different ways because you can do a multiple choice question, of course, but you can also submit open-ended responses. And so I like to use Brain Candy to promote that critique that I was talking about is kind of missing in classrooms that just focus on why the right answer is right. I think it's really important to also think about why the wrong answers are wrong. So whether it's a multiple choice question or an open-ended question, some other tools in Brain Candy that you can toggle on or off are visualization tools. So for instance, if it's a multiple choice question, you can toggle on a visualization of a histogram that shows like the vote percentages for each of the answer choices. So if you have a couple of different answer choices that are getting love, then you can show the class that, hey, we've got a couple of different answer choices that are trending here. So I'm not gonna tell you which one's right or wrong. Um, I'm gonna have you all talk to each other. And here's the thing, when you talk to each other, I don't just want you to talk about why you think your answer is right, but I want you to also try to explain why you think the other answers are wrong. And we actually have um, another feature called stealth mode where you can show the students the histogram where they see the bars at their various heights, but they don't see which one corresponds to which answer because some research suggests that when students see one of the answers trending higher than the others, even if they really aren't sure what is what, like they'll kind of flip their vote to the one that's most popular. They're thinking that must be the right one. So they're going to see that there's a lack of consensus, but they don't know which answer is which. So now it's on them to try to adjudicate these different answers and they're primed to not just talk about why they think their answer is right, but also why wrong answers are wrong. Another example with the open-ended questions is you can toggle on a visualization feature where the students can see on their screens all the answers that all the other students have written. And so what I'll do sometimes is ask the students after they've done submitting their answers to pick answers that they disagree with and to explain why they disagree with it. And I find that the anonymity again comes in handy because I do think that it's easier for students to critique other people's responses if they're anonymous. So here's a couple of different examples of how you can use the brain candy technology to try to promote a little bit more critique when you're learning. Yeah, I, it's a really exciting tool, Brian, and I'm sure many of our listeners are jumping on board right now and, and signing up, and I, I certainly will be doing the same. And I just want to kind of now move us into exploring, because it sounds like you're doing some really innovative pedagogical moves with these tools in science education. And given that this is the Learning Futures podcast and it's plural, what I'd like you to do now is kind of um, engage in this little speculative exercise with us and explore with us what you feel are some possible futures for science education. And in particular, your concern about critique and broadening what science means and how that's experienced in a more active and less passive way. And so I would like you to lay out for us briefly, if you will, what you see as the good, the bad, and the beautiful when it comes to possible futures. The good, the bad, and the beautiful. The good, I think, is that we do have a new generation of standards, both in the sciences and educational standards in general, that do emphasize, at least on paper, that it is important that we give students a chance to articulate their thinking with evidence-based reasoning. So that's good. I think what's bad is that 
historically, we have an educational system based on passive regurgitation of reading, writing, and arithmetic. It's a 19th and 20th century model that was built for educating a very different workforce than the kind of workforce we need today. So many of our teachers didn't have the experience of, say, learning science through evidence-based argumentation. So they're not quite sure what to do. And so a kind of ugly aspect of these standards emphasizing evidence-based argumentation is, is that there's not a lot of resources for teachers to facilitate learning environments with evidence-based argumentation. And so that's why I am involved in creating curriculum. Um, I've worked with colleagues to write a book that has these various different lessons where you can teach traditional science topics, but with an evidence-based argumentation spin on it. And then I think it's important to develop technologies like the brain candy technology that I was just talking about. And I also think that it's very important that you develop assessments, right? Because it's one thing to be able to get kids to engage in evidence-based argumentation, but it's another thing to be able to assess how effective it is. And so we need to develop all those things. And we're getting better at it, but I would still put that in the bad category because we ignored it for a couple of centuries in how we think about curriculum. The last one is the thing that I love about the future. The beautiful. The beautiful. I think a better way of thinking about it is the ideal because it's going to be really challenging to get there. But for me, the ideal, which would be quite beautiful, would be classrooms that spend more time also focusing on why wrong answers are wrong, that focus on the importance of critique and not just passively listening and regurgitating to a one-sided account that a perceived expert tells you because that's quite simply not what it looks like when you leave the classroom anymore. You have myriad information bombarding you with all these different agendas behind the information. So you have all sorts of contradictory information and you're not going to be very equipped to adjudicate that information if you're just used to just hearing one-sided explanations of things. So classrooms that promote more critique. Now that's a lot easier said than done. And so Part of what I could see as potential beauty in the future of classrooms is if we move in this direction and we really do continue to practice what we preach with these new standards that value evidence-based reasoning, then I think that we need to move more towards presenting information from multi-sided accounts. And there's actually good evidence that, for example, how textbooks are structured. This goes back to the 80s. There's good research in things like refutational text where instead of just providing a one-sided account of a topic, you actually present that more or less scientifically accepted way of thinking about things alongside some contradictory viewpoints. And so you don't just give them the one-sided correct way of thinking about things, but you also say, but other people thought about it this way or this way, and here's why those ways aren't as widely accepted as this way. So you're not just focusing on why the right answer is right, but also why the competing wrong answers were wrong. And another thing that I would like to see in the future that would be very beautiful, so that's part of why it's kind of an ideal because there are a lot of challenges to this, but we need, I think, to spend more time thinking about these issues that have a science and or technological angle to them. We actually don't spend a lot of time in the day-to-day, particularly in the primary and secondary levels, relative to other topics, thinking about science. And I think that part of that is, is that a lion's share of time is spent on English language arts, 
and on mathematics. And, and clearly those are incredibly important tools. And, and I definitely think that we need to spend time learning how to read and write. But I also think that we could spend some more time reading and writing to learn. And when you're reading or writing, it's never context free, right? There's, also, there's always gonna be some context in which you're reading or writing about stuff. So why not spend a little bit more time when it comes to reading and writing instruction of having scientific context to it, which can include showing students that there are competing ways of thinking about incredibly important issues of our time, like climate change and COVID and so forth. Yeah, I, I think you're raising some really provocative questions, uh, these kind of what if possibilities and, and helping us kind of envision what this could possibly look like and the importance of doing so. And I mean, it gets me excited about science. I just wish I would have had some of these kinds of classes you're describing um, in this idealized and, and hopeful future. And it, you're clearly doing important work to help us move in that direction. And so what I'd like to do at, with the remaining moments that we have, if you have anything else you'd like to kind of share with the audience, including how they might learn more about your work, we already have the link to um, Brain Candy. We'll be sure to drop that in the show notes as well. But are there any other ways people can learn more about the kind of work you're doing or any other work that you would recommend along these lines? Once again, I want to suggest that if there's any interest in Brain Candy, you can go to braincandy.org. You can get a free teacher account. My goal is to keep Brain Candy free in perpetuity. As long as, you know, based upon the number of servers that we need, I can still afford to keep it free. I'm going to keep it free because it's really important that lots of people use it because another aspect of the technology that I haven't mentioned yet is, is that when more people use it, we get more data on how the questions that are used in the Brain Candy platform perform. And so, there's a whole part of Brain Candy where teachers can share the questions that they've made, they can provide feedback, rate each other's questions. And quite frankly, some of the things that I talked about, about how you could use a technology like Brain Candy to promote things like critique and evidence-based argumentation, it's easier said than done because if you don't have good questions that promote uncertainty, then there's not a lot of uncertainty to have to adjudicate and therefore not a lot of need to critique. But if you have questions that do elicit different points of view or a couple of the different answer choices are getting love, then you have uncertainty, which you can then shift the classroom dynamic and put it on the students so they have to try to negotiate that uncertainty with evidence-based argumentation. So it's really important to me to keep it free. So braincandy.org is where you get your hands on that. So of course, my ASU website provides kind of a synopsis of the different areas of research that I'm interested in which also includes um, a big project that I've been working on for five years now. It's a big NSF DRK-12 project that I'm a PI for, where I have been trying to work on, as I mentioned, you need curriculum for teachers that aren't used to teach classes with evidence-based argumentation. And you also have to match that with assessments to gauge the efficacy of that curriculum. And so on the assessment side of things, I've been working to develop a assessment platform called Dialogue, which for diagnosing the argumentation levels of groups. What's unique about Dialogue is that its focus is on the speaking and listening modalities. In the realm of assessment, you always have reading and writing getting the preponderance of attention because 
you can take a written assessment home and you can grade it later. But when it comes to speaking and listening, it's there and then it's gone. Unless you're a researcher like myself that can record this stuff and take it back to the lab and, and scrutinize it, teachers in the day-to-day -day classroom don't have the time to record and go home and analyze the recordings of their students talking. And so dialogue is a technology that I've developed to put in the hands of teachers to prompt them to look for various aspects of speaking and listening in a science classroom that values evidence-based argumentation. And without going too much more into the gory details, you can think of an iPad in the hands of these teachers and the iPad has these various different things that the teachers are looking for and then ways in which they can score and annotate what's going on in the classroom based on these different things that they're looking for. And then part of my philosophy of assessment, it's not enough just to have a score, but you have to have a way to react to the score. So part of the dialogue assessment suite is that we have a series of what are called responsive mini lessons. And so based on what scores the teacher gives on these various aspects of speaking and listening, there's these mini lessons that they are recommended to use as follow-up lessons to try to move the needle a little bit more on the aspects of speaking and listening that the dialogue assessment suggested need a little bit more work. And so my more general hypothesis about this project is that at the end of the day, the most important thing isn't the assessment as much as it is with repeated use of an assessment that has you looking for certain features of classroom practice. Over time, you begin to develop this professional vision as an instructor where you begin to see things that you wouldn't have seen in the past. And so there's various aspects of speaking and listening that are subtle and yet important. The dialogue assessment points this out for teachers. And my hypothesis that as they get more and more accustomed to using the assessment, they become more and more accustomed to seeing these things when they happen in the classroom. And so we're doing a nationwide study where we've got 100 teachers across the country, 50 of them are given the dialogue assessment system, and 50 of them are not. Now, they're all given the same curriculum, so we want to make sure the, the playing field is equal there. But we are looking to see that if having this assessment on top of the curriculum, teachers practice at looking for things that over time enhances their professional vision of being able to see those things. And so we've actually also developed assessments where, so I have a PhD student that's taking the lead with her dissertation and developing this assessment of professional vision where teachers are given videotape of classroom activity and at any time they can pause the video and they can annotate what they see. And so we can look at the teachers that are both given the dialogue assessment and that are not given the dialogue assessment and we can look at the things that they point out and how they point them out, what they comment on, the things that they're looking for, how they articulate what they see, to see if there really is a change in the professional vision of the teachers that on a regular basis are looking for various indicators of healthy speaking and listening in their learning environment. Yeah, well, that's really nice. And thank you so much, Brian, taking the time to share your work with us. You're doing really transformative work, building these kinds of tools and, and transforming not only the kind of practices and the way in which science is experienced for students, but also for teachers. So there's a lot of teacher and student learning simultaneously um, in trying to disrupt and make visible some of the things that often get overlooked in, in schools and classrooms. I, I love that you're working on not only the student experience, but also the assessment 
that's happening and, and thinking differently about assessment, how it can happen on the fly, how it can happen repeatedly, and how it can happen in ways that we sometimes don't think about focusing on teaching or listening um, and speaking in particular. So thank you again for sharing the time. Um, and that's a wrap. I really appreciate it. It's been a lot of fun. Thank you for listening to the Learning Futures Podcast. Be sure to check out the show notes for more information and see you next time. The Learning Futures Podcast is produced at Mary Lou Fulton Teachers College at Arizona State University. Executive producers are Dr. Sean Leahy and Claire Gilbert. The show is produced by Dr. Clarine Collins and Karina Munoz-Baltazar. Audio production provided by Claire Gilbert.